Good morning, church. Thank the music team. It is good to be here this morning. Um, I, uh, one of the things that we, uh, as a preach team, I think we try to do as we prepare messages is to try our best to um, match the tone of the text with the tone of the message. And, you know, as I was going through this text and, and knowing where we're at in the story and the narrative, what's going on with Jesus, um, it's a pretty weighty text that we've got. Um, you know, life is tough. This, this message is about trials. It's about what sustains us in those trials. It's about Jesus preparing his disciples for what was coming. And it was not going to be easy. And it's not easy for us. Um, but the reality is that life is war. And if we haven't been around long enough to know that, you will one day. Um, but there are many people in this room who have felt that, who know and understand that life is a battle, life is war, and some trials stick around. Some trials are momentary and other trials last. Um, so what we're covering this morning, I want to emphasize that this is weighty, it's about as weighty, it seems to me, as it gets. So this text this morning, we're in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is just finishing up his final Lord's Supper, his Lord's Supper, the final Passover meal with his disciples. And he's having this very intimate conversation with them. And maybe not doesn't feel quite as intimate in the book of Luke, but if you read the story in John, he devotes several chapters to this few hours. And it's a very intimate time with his disciples, with his sheep. But the section we have this morning is chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. And it's basically two sections that we're going to cover this morning. I'm going to kind of cover it in halves, 31 through 34 and 35 through 38. And I feel like both seem to be under this umbrella of a coming change that Jesus is preparing his disciples for. You know, the last three years leading up to this point, the disciples have been enjoying pretty much kingdom on earth, it felt like to them. They've been enjoying unprecedented blessings of being intimately with their Savior, with their Messiah, in the flesh. But as Jesus enjoys the last evening with his disciples, he knows that that will soon be changing, and that this change will bring about incredible challenges for them. And not to mention himself. He too would go through this testing and these trials just like the rest of us. So like the perfect shepherd that he is, he wants to prepare them. And in some sense, uh, he wants to prepare us today. So let's read the text all the way, uh, both sections, and then we'll, um, we'll get, get to going on this. So verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you do not know me. And he said to them, 
When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So my one goal this morning, and it's, I think the goal of probably everybody who stands up here, I really hope it is, um, that one goal is to put something beautiful about Jesus in front of you guys. To put something about Jesus on display, something that's praiseworthy. Something that's so heart-satisfying and filling that it makes our hearts sing no matter what we're going through. I want the eyes of our hearts to be drawn in to see Jesus more clearly for who He truly is. To feel something about Him that will sustain us when we stumble our way through this broken life. I want this foundational truth to further strengthen the foundation of your soul. Where do you plant your feet? So that when the storms of life come, and they will, that you will be standing on solid ground. So I want to pray for us that God would do that work because only He can do this. Only He can accomplish that goal. And so let's pray, and I hope that you'll pray with me. Father, we, we thank You for the salvation and the gift that You offer to us through Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. We thank you for all the truths that we sung about this morning, that our life is in him, and that we cling to you for every breath. Lord, we often are reminded in life of how fragile life is, and we know, uh, we often take for granted how close we come uh, to death. And so we know our lives are fragile. We know we are dependent upon you for every breath. And we are certainly dependent upon you for every step we take faith. And so we ask that you would uh, strengthen us here as we go through this text, that you would cause your spirit to encourage those who need encouragement, which is every single one of us. We ask that you would just embolden us, Lord, to take this great news, to take these truths that we're going to hear today about you and take it into our lives, into our families, into our people that we're discipling and ministering with and that it would help us uh, walk by faith. So we pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the one thing that God wants, I think, to come through loud and clear. This is what I would like for you guys to come away with. And it's the main point of this message. And it's the point that God is 100% sovereign over life's testings and our faith. I'm going to say it again. God is 100% sovereign over every one of life's testings. And He's sovereign over our faith. And that's it. I know you all have heard the buzzword, God is sovereign, probably a million times. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And maybe even seems a bit anticlimactic. But I don't want this common church word to just kind of come in one ear and out the other. I want you to press into this. I want you to really feel and embrace what the implications are for us in our life today, tomorrow, the next day, and every day hereafter. And in the lives of our friends who need it, who need to hear 
that God is sovereign over their life testings and over their faith, over their standing. And we have to confess that oftentimes we know this intellectually, but we often forget and are so prone to ignore the fact that God is in control. He is sovereign. And by sovereign, I mean this, that he is ultimately decisive. And he is ultimately in control of the entire process from start to finish. From the very origin of the idea of testing and the carrying out of it, to our very response to the testing when it comes, and to the ultimate purpose for which this testing is even for. He's in control of all of it. So I want to get into how does this text support the idea that God is 100% sovereign over these testings and our faith. Let's start with the very origin of the idea here in this story. So he starts off in verse, there at the beginning, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now you might see that word demanded and think, demanded. It's kind of an odd word that you wouldn't expect. Satan has the authority, the right to demand anything of the Almighty. Other translations try to kind of soften it by saying demanded permission or asked or requested. It's an attempt to resolve this apparent overstatement by Luke. But I believe when you look at the Greek that demanded really is the best translation. So the question is why? So in some of the some of the dictionaries, the Greek dictionaries, it says this word, demanded, which is only used here in the whole Bible. It says to ask for with emphasis and with the implication of having the right to do so. Theological dictionary of the New Testament says it's to demand the surrender of. It's most likely what they think the sense of is here in verse 20, 31. Peter is to be, the disciples are going to be handed over. So it does seem, whether it aligns with our thinking or our doctrine about this relationship between God and Satan or not, it says what it says. But I do think that it's the right way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully defend that, and hopefully you'll see it as well. So Satan did apparently have the right to demand this of Jesus and to demand that the disciples be handed over to him for sifting. So how can this be? To help answer this, we need to look, I think, at Matthew and Mark's account to see their perspectives because both of these guys say it. They add a little bit to the story, the narrative. Just take Matthew 26, for example. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Why? For it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So the answer is this, that God is faithful to his word. And Satan knows that about God. 500 years before Jesus and the disciples are even on the scene, through the mouth of Zechariah, the prophet, God said that this was going to happen. That the shepherd would be struck and the, and the, and the shepherd, sheep would be scattered. So Satan knew this day was coming and he knew God is faithful to his word. And so... I presume Satan had been looking forward to this for quite some time. God said it, and so he knew it was going to happen. So in that sense, he was able to demand it because God can't go against his word. And don't miss this other point either. Zechariah, Matthew, and Mark, they all abundantly make it clear that God 
is the one doing the striking and the scattering. Satan is simply eager to see that God hold himself to his word, which he, of course, always does. I can almost hear this conversation happening in heaven. Satan approaching the Most High in the heavens and saying, God, you said the shepherd was going to get struck. And you said that that was going to cause the sheep to scatter. So it's time to let me have them. So in that sense, I think he's right to say that Satan demanded to have you. I'm reminded of the conversation in heaven that happened about Job, if you're familiar with that story. Do you remember who initiated the testing there? It wasn't Satan. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God's the one who puts Job on display and put him in the crosshairs of Satan. And here, the disciples, uh, with the disciples, I think a similar conversation is happening between God and Satan. So while Satan may have demanded to have the disciples to test him, there's no doubt that God is still calling the shots. It is all his idea. He was and is and always will be in control. So one of the points that we have is that before Satan demanded it, God sovereignly ordained it. Before Satan even had the right to demand it, God sovereignly ordained it. So verse 32 goes on to expand how God is 100% sovereign and in control of Peter's response to the testing and ultimately our faith. Now, I don't think it's sufficient to say that Jesus is simply knowing ahead of time what Peter and the disciples are going to do. Tapping into his divine omniscience. Yes, he knows all things. He is God. But this is an attribute for another sermon. This text and much of the entire Bible demands more than Jesus simply having the divine insight or the foreknowledge of what was going to happen in the future. Verse 32 says, But I have prayed for you. Now it's interesting to note that verse 31, the reason I was saying that Satan demanded to have all the disciples, was because the you in verse 31 is plural in all those cases. Verse 32, it's singular. So, He's demanding to have all the disciples, but then he turns to, to uh, Peter and says, but Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith, singular faith, will not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, you, Peter, strengthen your brothers. So the plan seems fairly straightforward. God the Father was going to strike the Son. The disciples were going to scatter, including Peter, for a time but Peter was going to faithfully turn again. Now notice Jesus says, when you have returned, not if. How can Jesus be so sure that Peter would return? According to verse 32, it's clearly rooted in Jesus' prayer for him. Peter's face was not going to fail or cease because Jesus prayed for him. It is also worth noting that I think is foundational, though it's not explicit in this text. It's also worth noting that Peter had been affirmed by Jesus as clean earlier in this night. When he was washing their feet, he said, wash my entire body, Lord. He said, you've already been made clean. All you need to be washed is your feet. You don't need to be cleaned again. You're clean, Peter. So he had already been affirmed that he was one of 
God's. Peter had professed with his mouth and believed in his heart that Jesus was the Christ, a fact that could only be revealed to him by the Father. And by God's sovereign grace, Peter had become a child of God. He was a sheep that had been given ears to hear the voice of his shepherd and respond in faith. And we've seen evidence of this throughout the Gospels. As imperfect as it may be, the evidence of true life exists in Peter. And this is the infinite difference between Peter and someone like Judas. Don't think that Peter's denial is any different than Judas's. They both denied Jesus in that moment. But the key difference is one belonged to Christ and the other did not. The light of Peter's faith was not ultimately going to be snuffed out by the sifting or any other future testing that he would face, which I'm sure there would be plenty. No matter what, Peter's faith was not going to fail or cease. Why? Because Peter belonged to God. And because of that, Jesus prayed for Peter, that his faith would not fail. And this was not the case for Judas, and it's not the case for any, anyone else whose false faith is ultimately proven to be like the chaff that the wind blows away. John puts it this way in his epistle, 1 John 2, 19, speaking of these anti-Christians. It says, these, they went out from us. They looked like Christians on the surface, but they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they um, are not of us. There's so a huge difference between these anti-Christians, these fakes, and the true authentic is their relationship with God through Christ. So Peter was of God in Christ. Therefore, he has the promise of continuing in the faith, just like the rest of us who are in Christ. Those who are not of God in Christ will not. It's as simple as that. No matter how polished you might look on the outside, no matter how often you come to church, no matter how often you read your Bible, if you are not of God in Christ, if you have not been born from anew, born from above, your faith is a sham. So from this we see, I believe, that true saving faith will be 100% sustained by God, not us. So true, again, true saving faith will be sustained by God, not us. Now, if you had asked Peter at the moment, at that moment in that dinner, why he thought he would be able to continue with Jesus, both to prison and to death, to have that confident statement, we would see his answer in verse 33, and he would say, Lord, I am ready to follow you into death and into prison. But interestingly enough, this confidence in himself would soon vaporize before a little servant girl in the courtyard. Jesus knew how fragile Peter was, even though Peter didn't. He was blind to his own weakness. He was overconfident. And in fact, he was so confident in his own readiness to go arm in arm with Christ into battle 
that he had the audacity to verbally just stomp all over his fellow disciples by saying, in Matthew's account, though all these jokers fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What a statement to make. What arrogance. But, Jesus is so patient, so compassionate. Reminded in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Jesus viewed that as words for the wind. He knew Peter's frailty. He knew that his faith was about to falter. That's why he prayed for him. Peter didn't know it yet. He needed to grow. He needed to mature in his thinking. So Jesus patiently and lovingly rebukes Peter as a father would compassionately rebuke and instruct his child, telling him how far he was actually going to fall this very night. That he was going to deny that even he knew Jesus three times before the rooster would crow. This proud man who was going to go to prison with Jesus was soon rendered to a scared sheep scattered along with the rest. So pride and self-confidence have a way of misguiding us, doesn't it? It says, I got this, God. Thank you very much. I'm good from here. I can take it from here. We've all had those mountaintop experiences where we lose sight of our dependence upon God for every breath, for every step of faith. get on cruise control and we think we're flying high and we're doing pretty good on our own. We don't need him anymore. I got this. That was the sin of Peter and it's the sin of all of us if we're not careful. So humility, on the contrary, humility and God dependence recognizes our weakness and it recognizes our complete inability to do anything in and of ourselves. It cries like a hopeless beggar, a hopeless child. Lord, I need you. We sing that song, right? I need you every hour. I need you. I think if it flowed better, we'd probably say second. Or it doesn't flow as well. But that's the reality is that every second of the day we need you, Lord. And humility also looks on others who are struggling under the weight of their own sustained testing not with judgment, but with compassion and patience. It doesn't look down on them. Rather, it looks for ways to lift them up, to come alongside them, to encourage them, because they know that if it weren't for God's grace in that moment, they'd all be at rock bottom, just like them. So the question for us today, in this, at this point, is have you ever thought or said something similar? Have you ever been where Peter is, where you say, I would never. I would never fall away. I would never stumble. Have you ever been so bold as to say it or even think it? I certainly have, I'm sure, in some form or fashion. Perhaps you've never said the words exactly, but maybe like me, you've kind of judged or been critical of others who are struggling in ways that you don't understand. It's not a struggle for you whatever it is, but they're struggling. They're facing that anxiety, that fear is real to them. Do you get impatient 
with others as they struggle for season after season after season? Or have you been less compassionate toward them as they flounder week after week? You stop calling, maybe. Maybe for a season of time, you, uh, your heart was compassionate towards them, and then soon that fades. The phone calls stop going. The texts stop going to them. You just kind of lose sight. But yet they're still floundering, still struggling. So with Peter, I can feel in my heart at times that all these jokers around me are so worried about money and health, getting COVID or school, their grades. The thought of being, you know, per coming persecution in America just like makes them go bonkers. But I don't. I don't worry about those things. I never will. We can say those things. So be careful. If you find yourself judging and criticizing others in their faith struggle, I assure you it is from the same prideful heart that says with Peter, I'm ready, Lord, to follow you anywhere. I will never fall away like these guys. Worth a little reflection. Okay, so we've seen that God is sovereign over the testing of our faith. And he is sovereign even over our response. And most assuredly, he is sovereign in sustaining our faith through the testing. Next, we want to talk about how God is sovereign in the purposes of this testing. It is not wasted. It may feel like it at times, but it is not. At the end of verse 32, Jesus tells us the end game for all of this, at least for this example, and that is that Peter would strengthen his brothers. And God was going to use the sifting process to somehow better prepare Peter for doing this work than had he not gone through that sifting. And based on Peter's perspective that he verbalized in verse 33, I think it's safe to say that Peter also had some real pride issues he needed to work through before he was going to be asked to do what he did to, to, to strengthen his brothers. After all, how can you strengthen a brother from a prideful position? We know that this sifting has its purposes. The process of sifting wheat was to separate the chaff from the grain. A sifting fork was used to throw the wheat into the air allowing the wind to blow the chaff away while the grain fell to the ground to be gathered and put to good use. Now I have to admit, when I think about Satan demanding to sift these guys, I'm honestly not really sure why he wants to sift them. You can understand why he wants to poke at them and make them feel pain in some form or fashion just because he's a cruel hater of God and his people. But why would he want to sift these guys? It feels a little bit like the story of Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox. If you remember that story, it's like God, you know, please don't throw me in the briar patch, right? You know, God is like saying, please don't, don't sift my guys. Come on, take it easy. And, and Satan's like, oh yeah, I want them. Let me add them. Knowing that it's the very thing that God wants in the end anyways. How frustrating it must be for Satan to constantly be intending things for evil that God has already ordained for his good. It must be so frustrating, and yet he continues like a psychopath. He continues to do it over and over again. Perhaps he just enjoys the thrill of seeing people suffer. I'm sure that's part of it. 
Possibly Satan had the thought that maybe, just maybe, some of these guys that look like Christians out there, look like disciples, if I get them sifted, maybe, just maybe, they'll get blown away like the chaff. Proving that their faith was fake. And I'm sure he would get a lot of satisfaction out of that. The problem is, um, even that wouldn't surprise God. God knows every one of his sheep by name. So the fact that this sifting would expose the fact that these people were fakes would not be any surprise to God. They weren't his in the first place. So we have to remember that Satan can't look into everyone's hearts to see who's born again and who isn't. He can't know for certain any more than you can know for certain that person that you're discipling or ministering to at work or your neighbor. We can't know the heart of the individual. But as for Satan's concern, he might as well give it a try. If nothing else, if Peter has proven to still be faithful in the end, maybe he can still get a little satisfaction knowing that he injected some hurt and some pain into that life, into that child of God. So no matter how futile his efforts actually are, it doesn't stop Satan from doing what 1 Peter says in 5.8. He reminds us that Satan's intentions and that we should be alert. Why? Because this adversary, the devil, prowls around constantly like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he can't touch us. He can't touch our souls. But he can try to devour and chew up our faith. Try as he might. Sometimes he's just content to watch us suffer. But thankfully, God has something far better in mind for our testing. Whether Satan thinks he's at the, at the, at the brunt of it or at the giving of it and the handing over to it or not, God has something far better in mind for our testing and our sifting. As the author and the perfecter of our faith, he seeks to do just that, to perfect us, to refine us. And he uses this kind of testing to bring it about. He's not threatened or worried about the testing process. He wasn't worried about Peter. Oh, I wonder if he comes back. We don't serve a weak Savior. We serve a Savior who is sovereign, not just of the, of the testing, but of the response and of his faith. He knows exactly what we need. He knew what Peter needed. He knows every one of our blind spots and he is faithful to his children that 100% he is totally committed to our being conformed to the image of his son, whatever it takes. Problem is, is that we often aren't as committed as he is to our being made in the image of his son. So we need help. We need testing. We need refining and while Satan may have his evil agenda of seeing the disciples' faith blow away like the chaff, we need to find peace. In those moments of testing, we need to find peace in the fact that his purposes will always, always, always yield to God's. Because God is the one who is sovereign. And God's purposes always come to pass and are always glorious and are always for our good. So no matter how much we think we may be floundering at times, we need to know that if you are in Christ, you need to hear this, if you are in Christ, 
if you've been called by this good shepherd and you have been given ears to hear and a voice to respond in faith and to proclaim Christ crucified, you need to know that nothing will ever change that. No amount or degree of testing could ever cause your faith to cease. It may falter, but it will never be snuffed out because God is the one who sustains your faith and is simply using these tests to refine you for his glory and for your good. So it seems clear to me that from start to finish, not just from this text, but the entire Bible, that from start to finish, in and through our, all of our faith testing, all the ups and downs of life, you can be confident that our God is always 100% sovereign over all of our life's testings, and he is sovereign over our faith. He controls it all. Peter summarizes it pretty well. Interesting how many references to Peter. Peter was a changed man. 1 Peter 1, 3-7, I think he summarizes what I've been trying to communicate for the last 30 minutes or so. Better than I could ever say. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this, you rejoice. He doesn't stop there. And in all these things, you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I simply can't say it better than that. Maybe I just should have read that over and over and over until it sunk in. Maybe I should have just read the whole book of 1 Peter this morning. It is pretty amazing to see, if you're familiar with the book, to read that book and to find within its words a man who has clearly been refined through trials for the purpose of being able to encourage others who are going to be going through similar trials. It's a book about persecution and trials and him doing exactly what Jesus told him to do that when he returned, that he would strengthen his brothers. And I'm sure he did it in word, but he also did it by writing it down for us. No matter, in their darkest season, and it was some dark seasons for those first century Christians. And there's some dark seasons for us in this room. It seems like it's just the way Jesus would have imagined it happening. I'm not surprised. But back to Luke. Luke 22, second section, 35 through 38. I think the overwhelming point of this is that change was coming. Change was on the horizon, and it was not a pretty sunrise. For three years, again, these disciples had front row seats to some amazing sights 
and things. They've been experiencing the closest thing possible to real kingdom life here on earth with their Messiah. It's been incredible, if you can imagine what it's been like for them. They were practically untouchable when their shepherd was nearby. They could go out and minister and do things, and they would uh, heal the sick, and they could do things that normal humans couldn't do. They experienced healings, miracles, walking on water, feeding thousands of people with just a couple, little bit of food. And as John ends his gospel, he says that the miracles and the amazing things that they saw and experienced were so numerous that if they were all written down, the world itself could not contain them. They saw a lot. And it was kingdom stuff. It was very unique. And that was about to change. But Jesus is preparing these guys, lovingly preparing them for the days ahead. Something new was coming on the horizon that they had not experienced in the last three years, probably in their whole life. And it was likely different from what they were even hoping would come. So Jesus needed to prepare them. These guys had wanted for nothing. They had all of their needs met. Their good shepherd was doing exactly what David said in the Psalms about what a good shepherd does. He nurtures and cares for, protects. He was doing all those things. And they were the the recipients of all that blessing. They lacked nothing and they ministered in complete safety. They were untouchable. No threats from the Pharisees. No threats from anyone. They were under his wings. And he was their portion in the flesh. But things were going to be different in a few short hours. And Jesus is telling them, okay, guys, I know we've seen a lot of pretty cool stuff. But now it's about to get different. It's about to get real. Verse 36 says, but now. Didn't used to have to require a money bag and sandals and all that because I provided for all that. Now you got to have it. But now let the one who has a money bag take it with him. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. It's about to get really hard. And you're going to be on your own for a bit. And he doesn't leave them with anything more than that. No timeline, no specifics, no more details than that. And I would imagine that it's a bit of a gut check for these young men who had been with them for so long, with Jesus for so long. I bet they were quite confused about this whole dying thing, this whole suffering on the cross thing. They were confused. And I'm not going to claim to fully understand all that Jesus intended to communicate here in these last section of the verses about the swords and stuff. But what is clear is that Scripture needed to be fulfilled. He makes that very clear. Scripture needed to be fulfilled that Jesus was going to be numbered among the criminals. Now, when I heard that prophecy, I'd always thought about it in terms of the three crosses, thieves on either side of them. He was numbered among the the criminals. Certainly true of that event as well. Certainly a fulfillment of that prophecy. But Jesus ties the prophecy to this statement saying um, they were going to be numbered even among 
these disciples who are going to be misfits, criminals. Jesus is making it clear that this group of soon-to-be misfits would, would need supplies and swords. Why? For the purpose of fulfilling Scripture. And interestingly, it seems that Jesus even provided those swords seemingly out of nowhere. They were just like, huh, there's a couple swords over there. And Jesus is like, that'll do. He knows what he's doing. But I think the extent of Jesus' desire for them to possess a sword or two was primarily, if not completely, about his being numbered among the criminals. I didn't get a chance to confirm the sword laws in Jerusalem during the time of Christ, but it isn't hard to imagine that Rome probably didn't like the idea of these Jews running around with swords. I imagine there were laws against that, and so my, yes, I'm making some conjecture here, but my gut is, is that they're, this posse who had swords were, would be considered illegal criminals, chaste, and, um, and Jesus was associating with them. Especially after what Peter did in the garden, he gets his hand on a sword for a couple hours, and you see what he did. So I'm pretty certain that Rome would not have taken kindly to them having these swords, but like I said, I, the text is clear that it was to fulfill Scripture and that he was numbered among the criminals. I'm not going to take it any further than that. But I don't believe he is saying that I was protecting you before from all these dangerous Pharisees and demon-possessed crazies, but now you're going to need to go on in attack mode with your supplies and swords or even use them for your own protection. I don't think Jesus is saying that. It just seems so counter to everything Jesus taught them while he was there and what Paul even doubles down on as we read the New Testament. Listen to how Paul communicates our blood-bought position as Christians and where our focus is should be. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, this is your reality, what I'm about to read. As you sit there amidst all your anxieties and the many difficulties you're facing today, and there are many. I know that there are hurts in this room, and I know that some of those hurts have lasted. And I know that every single difficulty sometimes probably feels unministered to, and you feel like you're bearing it on your own. It's a difficult place to be. It's a trial that God is there for you. He has ordained it. He is sustaining you in it. He's sovereign over it. And so if you're feeling that right now, I want this, this what I'm about to read in chapter 8 of Romans, as Paul describes our, what our focus should be. Romans 8, verse 32, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But starting in verse 32, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, now he's just gotten done talking about all the beautiful doctrines of grace and salvation. And he's saying, okay, what can we possibly say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against you in this moment, in your hurt? Who can be against you? He goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? As it is written, this is what Paul wants us to remember. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. So even though things have changed for the disciples, and even though things are hard for us now, it says here, even in another book by another writer, even here in Romans 8, it says that God, who did not spare His own Son, is still giving us all things. Even though He's not here in the flesh with us like He was with the disciples, He's giving us what we need in Christ. He is still giving us all things. He is still providing for us all that we need. And I don't know if you caught this either, but it says, and Jesus is still interceding for us. He is praying for us just like he did with Peter. He is still doing what needs to be done to keep us faithful until the end. To keep your faith from failing, even right now. And Paul reminds us, he goes on to say, we, like so many others who have gone before us, are being killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is part of our identity. It's who we are. I'm sorry, but that's the reality. It just is, and we are called to follow Christ in this. Yet, it is not as though we are without hope or without joy. For it says that we are more than conquerors. He says we rejoice in this. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to conquer? What do you think Paul has in mind there? Clearly what it means to conquer, does it mean something that we're promised physically? Physical conquering with sword? Any political conquerings or financial conquerings or social conquerings? No. I only see one conquering that Paul promises that we are to claim and to cling to and to hope in, and that is what victory looks like for him is being inseparable from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Union with the Almighty. Being one with God in Christ is our victory. Unending fellowship with God is the reality of our conquering. It's the reality of our, it's what fuels our unending joy forever. And this is not intended by Paul to start 
at the, new co at the second coming. We don't have to wait for it. We will certainly have it then in its fullness, for sure. We have things to look forward to. But this relationship that he's talking about here in Romans 8 is as real for you today, if you are in Christ, it is as real for us today as it ever will be. It's not going to be improved in the new heavens and the new earth. We are just as much in Christ today as we ever will be. We are just as much one with the Father as we ever will be. Loved. Jude reminds us uh, that we are called by God. We're beloved and we are kept. And this unending joy that God promises can be realized in appropriate and growing measures today. Even amidst the brokenness of this world, the challenges that we face, and all the trials and testings that come our way. And these testings come by way, come by God's complete sovereign and faith-sustaining hand. I'm going to close with a passage that we're all very familiar with, but it's just so helpful to close in James chapter 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. How can you face trials with joy? It's because we know that something good is happening. We know that God is sovereign in it and through it. And it says that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen.